G'day and welcome to episode 10 of Safety at Work Talks. My name is Kevin Jones. Recently, I was invited to be a keynote speaker at a conference in Tasmania. The conference was organised by WorkSafe Tasmania as part of the efforts by the heads of workplace safety authorities to strengthen the connections between workplace health and safety inspectors throughout Australia and New Zealand. I was invited to provide a non-regulatory perspective and to be challenging and provocative. This podcast is an edited version of the first half of that presentation in which I talk a little bit about uh, business bullshit, resilience, the downside of as far as is reasonably practicable, and psychological harm, and how this may uh, or may affect the role of the inspector. So I hope you enjoy uh, listening to me uh, speaking in Tasmania recently. Um, but thanks for inviting uh, me here today. Um, those of you who have been to a couple of these things uh, before, um, you can get blasé about conferences, but um, I can tell you as a, as a, a speaker, um, it's a, it's really is a true honour to be speaking to you people. Um, you'll have, uh, you'll, you've already had speakers who are much more polished than I am, and they talk in, in courts and all that sort of stuff, but um, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see you here, and it's wonderful that um, there's such a collection of inspectors um, talking across the state. It's really, really important. I didn't know you did it. I'm really glad that you do. But I want to start off by reading you a part, uh, part of the brief that I was given to talk about today to give you the context of uh, why I'm here. The purpose of this session is to provide insight into the future challenges for workplace health and safety regulators due to the challenges in the nature of work, workforce, supply chains, and the social and political environments, and encourage inspectors to consider how, uh, to consider the way they do their work uh, and how it may need to change to meet these challenges. Well, today I want to encourage you all to analyse what you say, what you are told, what you do, and how you do it. Too often we accept information and our situations uncritically. I want you to question everything, including what I will share with you today. Um, I'll start though with an example of a recent statement from the chairman of the company that uh, owns and runs Dreamworld, a company called Art of Leisure. You may have heard of them. Um, on behalf of my board colleagues and our team members, by the way, he said this at the AGM just a couple of weeks ago. On behalf of my uh, board colleagues and my team, uh, our team members, we again say uh, how sincerely sorry we are to the families and all those so deeply impacted by this tragedy. There is no greater priority for Ardent than it's passed off on the way, uh, for Ardent um, than striving to achieve global best practice safety standards. We are continuing to focus on safety improvements and enhancements, enhancements across all aspects of the path and reconfirm our commitment to implementing all coronial inquest recommendations in consultation with Workplace, workplace Health and Safety Queensland and the deep park industry. Now I know there's lots of people talking about amusement ride issues at the moment, but that was what he said at the AGM. Now, shareholders were relatively happy with Dr. Gary Weiss's words, or Weiss's words, but in that quote, there are no real commitments, no outcomes, if you look closely at his quote. He says there's no greater priority for safety. Well, that's now. But the Queensland coroner seems to be revealing different companies, uh, company priorities from a couple of years ago. He talks about global best practice safety standards. Well, if anyone can find out what they are and who writes them, let me know, because uh, they change from uh, day to day. Arden is continuing to focus on safety. 
Focusing on something doesn't mean you're doing anything. It just means you're looking at it. So be careful with the, the, the issue of focus. Arvind will implement all the coronal recommendations. Fantastic. But in consultation, the company's commitment is, uh, is not uh, an unequivocal commitment. There's plenty of wriggle room in what uh, they're saying. And there's an excellent book that I recommend to you all by Andre Spicer called Business Bullshit. Um, it will help you in your work by showing how unclear work, words make and change organisational cultures. It's a significant uh, book. But I started off with the Arvind example because one of the issues that I've been asked to talk about is how work in the workplace is likely to change. Well, the easy and honest answer is, I'm bugging if I know. And in reality, no one knows. But you would have heard people talk about drones and artificial intelligence and augmented and virtual reality, all under the rubric of the future of work. Well, I find some of these interesting uh, from time to time, but some people really froth up about them. And anyone who has a strong enthusiasm often misses a lot of the other stuff that's happening. I think we saw the, um, well, we tried to see the gorilla in the basketballs yesterday. That was the point that was, I think it was a corridor the, the lawyer was making, is that when we focus on one thing, we often miss important things happening elsewhere. And, uh, and I think we're seeing that with, uh, with drones and artificial intelligence. But one of the things I think um, is that we focus on the future of work rather than the future of the worker. For those of you who are old enough, consider what a worker looked like 20 years ago. We probably uh, will be thinking of outdoor workers in shorts and singlets, perhaps workers up ladders, or even perhaps 30 years ago, women only typing pools. I know I remember them. But what we were thinking about is, uh, what we are thinking about is work, not the worker. The worker today is the same as a worker was 50 years ago, and is likely to be the same in 20 or 30 years' time. The worker in the future is going to be a person who wants to earn a salary that firstly covers all their living costs. Secondly, it would be good if uh, they had some extra money that they could save for the needs of their family or for a house or the occasional holiday, especially to Melbourne because the coffee is so good. Um, and that, but that worker is also expecting to work without being injured, damaged or killed, as workers always have expected. However work, however, work or the workplaces change in 20 years' time, the worker will still be a person. And there is no doubt that we will have many more tools available to help us in our work, and it may be that the rate of technological change is greater than ever before. But we should remind ourselves that technology is not only those things that run on electricity or talk invisibly to each other. Technology includes the manual tools we use, the chairs we sit on, or the tables we sit or stand at, how those are designed, how they're manufactured, but more importantly, how people interact with that technology. It's the people interaction that always should be our focus. I want to also add that often we think of young workers at a particular risk at work, and they are. Uh, statistics clearly show that. But workers are supposed to be changing not just jobs, but careers every seven or so years. They are only young workers once, but they will be new workers at many times throughout their working careers. And some of those, those new workers will be older workers who are being encouraged to, or have no choice, to start a new job in a totally unfamiliar industry sector. I think we need to uh, consider look at our risk issues a bit rather than, um, if we focus on new workers, people who are unfamiliar to the workplace, the work task, 
um, we'll be seeing more and more of those in the future. And if we visit a work site and see an older person working next to a younger person, which one do we assume has the most experience in that workplace on doing that task? Who's the supervisor and who's the new worker? The behaviour of our corporate leaders has never been under greater scrutiny than it is at the moment. The Royal Commissioner has decided that the banking sector was operating on the basis of greed. Well, <laughs> shock horror. Um, the Defence Forces have been shown to have a problem with female soldiers and LGBTQI people. The Home Insulation Royal Commission, which I just uh, described as the Forgotten Royal Commission, found that a government department did not have the necessary skills to design or supervise a national job creation scheme in which workers died. Many of, the, of Australia's emergency services organisations have been found to have a culture of bullying, disrespect and sexism. Some companies have been putting profits before safety. Some politicians are putting the wishes of their donors before the needs of their constituents. In many instances, these are not revelations, but a confirmation of our suspicions. And these are the cultures that OHS inspectors visit every day. How are you expected to identify the causes of hazards so that control measures can be applied in these types of cultures? And I think it's also useful to remember that some of Australia's most prominent academics who have looked at safety culture now say that there is no such thing. Although that's the wrong way to look at it. Some are now advocating that we look at an organisational culture that includes safety. Those who sell safety culture are often seen as misunderstanding culture or being too narrow. And this evolving context of safety culture will have tangible impacts on how workplaces are inspected. The future will not have OHS professionals as such. Instead, there will be business advisors who specialise in health and safety. They will talk about productivity, efficiency, sustainability, disruption, responsiveness, continuity, and other business management processes. The common thread to all these will be treating workers as valuable assets who have physical and psychological needs and desires. And this treatment, I say, is essentially occupational health and safety. Now, this may feel a bit sneaky, but it fits the concept of culture. Few, if anyone, has said, let's build a culture. What they realise is they already have a culture and that it could be improved. No one consciously creates a culture from scratch. Wherever people are, there is a culture. Wherever people work, there's a workplace culture. In fact, the best illustration of organisational cultures currently is through the Banking Royal Commission. The Commission has forensically examined leadership and found it to be seriously lacking. What that process is showing is that leadership can be both a positive and a negative. In OHS, we rarely hear about negative leadership. We just hear about leadership or transformation or some other leadership with an adjective. And it was amazing that the Royal Commissioner's interim report used the concise but blunt term greed to describe the motivations of the banking executives. What that final report includes is just anyone's guess. But a lot of recent discussion about workplace health and safety and culture focuses on leadership, leading by example. You know, don't walk past the hazard you accept, all that sort of stuff. And this is important, but the banking sector has shown us that leadership can be complicit with unethical behaviours. It can establish, maintain, and take advantage of a broken culture, a culture of greed and exploitation. For many years, leadership is what we've hung our safety programs on, and then we wonder why companies place profits before safety. 
Profits will always come before safety. Because if a company is not profitable, it will fail. The argument comes about the size of those profits. What OHS tries to do is to improve safety without affecting profits. The business case in favour of OHS has been made several times before and locally in Australia. But the business sector doesn't accept it, or it remains ignorant of it. Businesses and their processes are usually established without or with little interest in workplace health and safety. OHS is almost always retrofitted to business um, after something has happened, often a serious incident or a fatality. So OHS is almost always an afterthought, and this is why it is seen as a nuisance, and why worksafe inspectors are seen as a nuisance. Because you point out to business owners that the design of their business the operation of their business is flawed. They left out safety, and this can be embarrassing. So they respond by trying to make OHS fit with what they have already been doing for decades in some instances. Safety in design is a worthy concept, but it's not been widely accepted. Good work design is advocated by Safe Work Australia and others, but has not been broadly applied. Embedding OHS in government procurement contracts has not really been taken up to the extent it could be. Trying to get health and safety considered seriously in the conceptual or design phases of anything has not worked, even though we know it is the most effective, the most economical way of establishing safe and healthy workplaces and supply chains. It is this business situation which, as far as is reasonably practicable, was intended to accommodate. Well, this phrase is one of the biggest legislative mistakes made in OHS. No one outside of lawyers understands it. Maybe people in this room do, I hope you do, but no one outside does. And let me give you an example of the legislative language that you and the PCPUs face. This is from a 2015 guide from Queensland on State Legislation. Try listening to this as if you were a PCPU who wants to do the right thing on OHS and is reading this for the first time. These general duties require the duty holder to ensure health and safety so far as is reasonably practicable by eliminating risks to health and safety. If this is not possible, risks must be minimised so, uh, so far as is reasonably practicable. Well, it may be legally inexact, but here's my take on those sentences, written so that PCBUs keep an interest in OHS and feel they can do something about it. This general duty of care requires everyone to ensure health and safety by eliminating risks. If this is not possible, risks must be minimised. Largely, my version removes as far as is reasonably practical, and I can guarantee PCBUs will understand my version more. We write guidance that turns people off OHS by making it seem more complicated than it is. No one uses as far as is reasonably practical in their risk assessment processes. They usually backfill these processes to look like serious consideration was given. As far as is reasonably practicable, it's used by those who manage safety liabilities rather than those who improve safety. When you think about practicability, it doesn't help in the prevention of harm. It's used when trying to explain a failure or an incident. Business owners want to be able to put to the courts or the regulator, oh, we did what was reasonably practicable. But this is little help to the health and safety reps at that work site. It's even less comfort to those families whose loved one 
was seriously injured or killed at work? Is it any wonder that some in the community are seeking industrial manslaughter laws? In many instances, it's been easier to focus on the faults of individuals rather than the deficiencies of the organisation or the system of work. Even though culture is created by people, individuals are still expected to be resilient to change, to be adaptable, and we are. People are surprisingly resilient, but just because they are doesn't mean that you don't have to change the way you work or how your business operates or the structures that you've based your businesses on. OHS laws continue to focus on safe systems of work, as they have since at least the 1980s, and people are part of that system of work. In fact, one way of thinking about systems of work is to think of them as just the old way of talking about what we now call workplace culture. I'm not saying that some people cannot benefit from resilient skills and training, but no business should rely on this, and no business should see resilience programs as a reason not to look at organisational or operational change. There is likely to be much more discussion on resilience as the hazard of work-related psychological harm becomes more inescapable. Addressing psychosocial hazards is hard, even though businesses have had this as part of their OHS duty of care since at least the 80s. It involves asking questions that are uncomfortable. Even more uncomfortably, it involves um, assessing how one's behaviour and decisions affects others. No one wants to have to take a good, long, hard look at yourself because we're nervous about what we might see. Yet this level of analysis is exactly what is required if we're going to address work-related psychological harm. I can't advocate strongly enough the importance of Safe Work Australia's recent guidance, um, which was the systematic approach to meeting your psychological OHS duties. As an OHS academic recently told me, we've got to remember that that's not research. But this document includes a systematic approach to reducing psychological harms. The significance is that the document has been agreed on. It's an agreed position by the members of Safe Work Australia's tripartite committee, which represents regulators, business groups, and worker representatives from all industry sectors and all states and territories. So it's a significantly uh, powerful document if we uh, bother to use it. Sadly, that tripartite process does not include representatives from the HR sector, who are perhaps the ones who would most benefit from the harm prevention approach advocated in the guidance. Mm -hmm. I recently mentioned this guidance at an HR seminar on well-being and precarious work, and no one in the seminar had heard of it. We and Safe Work Australia have some really big gaps to bridge. Thanks for listening to part one of my presentation to the Hauser Inspectors Forum in November 2018. The next part will be available shortly and will have my own, thought, my own thoughts on the primary duty of care, the role of unions, the new work structures, industrial manslaughter laws, the need to operate in a coordinated cooperative method across disciplines and organisations, notifiable psychological incidents and supply chains. If you enjoy what you've heard here, please consider following the Safety at Work blog where many of the issues raised in these podcasts are further explained and examined. The URL for the blog is safetyatworkblog.com or simply Google uh, Safety at Work blog. I'm sure we'll turn up in your uh, on your screens. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. My name is Kevin Jones and thank you very much for listening.